0: Good evening. <clears throat> we've been practicing now for about four full days. I'd like to begin with a quote from the Buddha on the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is what we've been practicing. And I hope that even in a little way, we've started to have a taste of what this this poem is pointing towards. The Buddha says bhikkhus or meditators. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too a meditator who develops and cultivates the four establishments of mindfulness slants, slopes, and inclines towards freedom. So what are these four foundations of mindfulness that we've been exploring? And in the moments when we've touched them, have our minds and our hearts inclined towards freedom? This evening, I hope to expand the, the practice to explore Buddha's teachings in a more holistic way. So we look at the fullness of the foundations of mindfulness and then places a more fuller perspective on how we can apply the basic teachings of mindfulness. Basically, we're continuing our journey that I had from the first talk of looking at suffering, the inner movement of the wheel out of kilter, the movement towards the end of suffering, of the work of the shamatha vipassana, so calming and steadying and seeing clearly, and um, wise attitude, exploring different wise attitudes, ones that I've found helpful, and the immense significance of bringing daily life and formal practice together. So these four foundations of mindfulness that slope toward, not rush, they slope like gravity. And we create this momentum through touching in again and again and again. And what are these four? The first is the body and breath. So our somatic experience, plain and simple. The second is the feeling tone. And some of us have been practicing and noting and just in a visceral sense of feeling if there's pleasure, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience in relation to what's arising. And that actually can be a place where we can strengthen our awareness, deepen our continuity of attention. The third is working with mind, heart, chitta, and its content. And the force is seeing all the phenomenon in a way that sees and inclines towards freedom, transforms our experience. So on one level, this makes up the fullness. Every experience we can have in the moment, any of the sense doors so that's included, obviously. anything that's arising in the mind and the heart, it's the whole of our experience each moment can incline us towards freedom if we meet it with full care and attention. And we train selectively, we'll continue to t- talk about how and why we do that, but embracing this attitude that it is the fullness of our experience is, of all experience that arises, is, is a way of really starting to hold, especially as we deepen on the retreat, hold Um, and and embrace our practice rather than making mindfulness kind of a thing of doing. We start to learn to, in a greater sense, abide. So Joseph, one of the founders here, has a whole series of um, talks called Abiding in Mindfulness. And I just like that little shift in attitude. Because it's one of being held. It encompasses our life, holds it. And we work through these four foundations, taking in a way smaller pieces, right? Like maybe just body and breath. And then as we're able, expanding so that we have a greater capacity to see the fuller range. So it's like we're moving from smaller to more whole or welcoming, welcoming more of a whole in. So this is what we do. But where do we do it? Where do we practice the Four Foundations? This is another sutta of the Buddha on working with postures. When walking, one knows I am walking. When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting. When lying down, one knows I'm lying down. Well, that's pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've been practicing, what have we been practicing? A lot of sitting and a lot of walking, right? And how many folks have moved when you've been lying down, have you just naturally moved into working with practice lying down? Great, even without instructions. How about when you're standing online? not just in the hall, but standing online for food or a bathroom or something. Okay, good. And were you able to kind of drop into the feeling this is actually practice, that this abiding in this posture, taking this posture for the time I'm in it, really is a place to come to. I'm not waiting for the next thing. I'm not taking a break from sitting or from walking, which is taking a break from sitting, right, for many of us. (laughs) Further along in this sutta, he, uh, the Buddha talks about mindfulness of all activities. And actually the four postures is a wonderful practice. It's something I actually like to do when I'm doing self-retreats, is just to rotate the postures and let my body kind of decide. But please don't try that here. <laughs> it wouldn't work very well. Uh, but it builds the integrity of just really having... So where do we practice the four foundations? Okay, We practice it in the four postures. And then later on in the sutta, um, he gets a little more explicit. So not only these four postures, but going forward and returning, looking forward and looking away, flexing and extending one's limbs, one does so clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, tasting, Defecating and urinating, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. One acts clearly knowing. When doing a forward bend. No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) Uh, Doing the yoga is a wonderful place, actually, when I hope that those of us who have been doing yoga really bring the spirit of this into the yoga postures. So we're not just doing yoga so that the body is more comfortable when we're sitting, but taking to heart. So that's flexing and extending one li- one's limbs, isn't it? Right? It's stretching this way and that. So we have, I, I love this because it takes in all of our bodily postures, right? Just everything we can do. And it also takes in the fact that we're using our senses more fully so we're seeing. So right now, can we be fully knowing as we're seeing? Or fully knowing as we're listening. So once we bring in this second piece, then what do we have? We have what I like to call the two pillars of practice, on which our practice can really stand, a whole a very holistic approach to practice can stand. And I think that the genius, that the Buddha was actually a genius in, in this in this sutta in making it very explicit that we can wake up with any state of mind or body, any place that we are, in any posture, any time, that there's this inclining towards, and it's interesting because it's, it's developed, right? Through these explicit teachings, through the utter simplicity of everything being included in our mindfulness. And in the sutta on the postures, he, he works in terms of, if you work in the postures, you know that your body is standing or walking or stretching, you know it. So you, so there's a sense that the body, you're in touch with the body, but that provides the grounded foundation. And that's what we've been doing a lot in practice, a grounded foundation where the other aspects of mindfulness can be received. Right? So it's a base, it's a grounded basis. And then we begin to hold everything more widely. So we begin to hold feelings, for example, pleasant and unpleasant. But it's, it's like the feeling tone of experience. We begin to hold that in both the physical and the energetic sense of being embodied, lightly being here. So let me just get a show of hands. How many people have like, experienced that some where you felt that it's not just your feeling sensation, but that you're, there's a quality of being present. You're somewhat present in your bodies and that that's a place where naturally more experience can land and you still stay present. Okay, good. Great. Great. Maybe when you hear this, you think, um, this is a recommendation to be mindful everywhere at all times, And it becomes sort of like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, yikes. Now I have to like, I have to be really rigid now. I don't just have to try hard when I'm sitting or whatever. So I think it's, um, for me, this approach, it kind of, it takes the lid off when it's held skillfully, it takes the lid off of any of our preconceived notions of where we should practice and where we cannot practice or should not practice. Oh, those shoulds again. Okay? So, um, and it can help us to really build and sustain momentum in this process of, of grounding and steadying attention in the present and seeing clearly. So in shamatha vipassana. Um, a teaching I received many, many times in my training over the years in the West and actually more in the East. So I had one, it, when I was in the Zen monastery, uh, there was one phrase I heard, we probably, I probably heard a thousand times, which was basically, uh, just do your best. In when, when I got to America and I was training, it was, uh, keep it simple and stick to the present moment, <laughs> which is actually, I think one of the best recommendations in practice that you can have. Keep it simple and stick to the present moment. And I think it was said somewhere. I don't know if I thought of it or I got it from a Woody Allen movie or where, but that uh, 80% of life is, is showing up, right? And I used to get teased in my early days of teaching because I would just tell people, sh- just keep showing up, just keep showing up. They'd be like, that's kind of simplistic practice, Matthew. I was like, well, it is, but it really isn't. So if 80% of the practice is showing up and, but it's like our life is a recipe. Where's the other 20? What's the other 20 percent? That's like the special sauce. And what is that? So we're going to start to explore that now a bit. That's uh, the quality of effort and attitude that we bring in, bring into practice, and we've, which we've been exploring all week, haven't we? So I want to continue that exploration this evening. I was watching a. Um, like a little bit of a a military, an old military movie a while ago. And I just, there's an image of all these, all the guys standing up with the colonel in front of them, all the soldiers, and they're all really tight. And then they go, at ease. And they all go, they slump and they start looking around. And I thought, huh, they almost got it right. You can turn that into Dharma because the first, one of the most important attitudes that we can do is make the shift of being at ease, but not just the wandering around, right? With it, but an at ease in our mental posture. And that's what we work with a lot. We're working with this balance of being both relaxed, but alert. Relaxed, but alert. I'd like to begin to explore working with the mind directly now and, and working, taking this piece of effort and then exploring it in terms of seeing how the mind is moving in relation to experience. And so this first part, and we opened the instructions today, didn't we, in terms of working, we've been working all along with whatever arises, right, holding it, either coming back to an anchor or sustaining our, our attention in relation to it but in the instructions this morning, and as we, and there is a a progressive element in a certain way, as we teach, we open to more things. So this is opening to the third foundation of mindfulness. When we intentionally open, if we have enough grounding, so we intentionally open to the mind. So one way when we work with the mind is just seeing the mind's relationship to experience and it relates to these, these core energies that keep us bound up. And remember from the last talk in this wheel of, the wheel of dukkha out of kilter, right? Bound up in reactive suffering, these energies of of wanting, not wanting, and not seeing clearly. So this same, these same energies can be when we're, when we've gotten a little more continuity, a little more stillness, we can begin to see, in relation to anything, whether it's our objects, our, wh- what we're intending to be with, to ground and steady our attention, right, our anchor, or whether it just be with whatever arises, what our actual relationship to this is. So if you want something to happen, like if you're leaning into an experience, that's wanting mind. That's an expression of this underlying energy that clouds our perception. If you don't want something to happen, what's happening? there's a leaning like to push it away. And if you're disinterested, that's called delusion. <laughs> so a, a, a wonderful Burmese teacher, U uh, who is a very open style of practice, says, "You are not trying to make things turn out the way you want it to happen. You are trying to know what is happening as it is." And when we when these energies are present, then they're trying to make something happen the way we want it to happen. And so this is a level of sensitivity, but it shows up kind of very concretely when we have reactivity to something. It's not the content, right? We have a thought, some, something's grabbing our mind, and we, we underlying, we react to it. There's just a pushing away energy towards it. So it's not the, it's not the actual thing. It's the energy underneath it or the breath. We can either have a, have a, have a relationship with the breath where, it's, where we're pushing into it or we're kind of disinterested. So this level of mind, when we start to be sensitive and um, it, it comes just out of interest. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to start looking like that's a technique to check. But once you're open and you're sensitive, then you start to feel how your mind is moving just energetically in relation to experience. So how do we work with it? I just described it mindfully. And what's the ideal? So maybe many of you have heard this story. It's a classic story on effort. And the Buddha uh, had a a monk who (coughs) was so wound up in his practice, he tried so hard, anyone feel like that? That he really had to get it and he couldn't. And I guess the backstory is his had was really advanced. So he had comp- really heavy family comparing minds who were in there. Okay. So he went in there and he was, he was, he was so wound up, he couldn't make progress. His mind was really tight. And so he went to the Buddha and he said, I'm going to leave. He was going to disrobe. He'd given his life to this, but he was going to leave because he was so tight and he couldn't do it. And the Buddha said, hold on. Sona was his name. Just chill out a little. I'm the Buddha. Just, <laughs> just hold on a minute. I might have a word for you. And then he said, Sonat, um, what were you before you were a monk? And he said, I was a, a lute player. He said, okay. He said, how did your lute sound when the strings of the lute were really loose? He said, oh, it didn't it didn't make any sound or it was just really bad, really twangy. And how was the sound, the quality of the music that you made when the strings were too tight? I said, oh, it also didn't sound good. Sometimes that even snap. And he said, just so, these are like the strings of your mind. These are the, these are the qualities in your mind that you're bringing to the moment. If they're too tight, you feel like you're going to snap. You can't make beautiful music with the quality of how you meet the moment and you can't progress. And so what's the corrective in this? Well, we work with a lot of correctives, don't we? We work with trying to have kindness, the sense of softness, the sense of noticing that everything is arising within a greater field of awareness so that we're just about where there's a kind of relaxation. These are all ways to try to encourage ourselves, self-compassion. They're ways of encouraging ourselves not to be too tight, And being energetic and having steady effort is not being too loose. And at the core, at the core of what the corrective is, is actually just seeing clearly the way it is. Is seeing the mind that is leaning into experience. Or seeing the mind that is pushing away experience just as it is. And that's actually, uh, that's the miracle of mindfulness. (laughs) is that when we're present, when we're curious, it's based on being interested and curious of how it actually is. And this is the level of relation to experience, of how it actually is. If we can do that, it can't come from here. It's got to come from clear seeing from here. It has to open. See what happens. Okay. It's very interesting. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And this is one of the aspects of what you might call a miracle. It's a natural corrective. So the Buddha's way is the middle way. And so rather than we do work to, we do work with some remedial energies to bring us back right towards the middle, not too tight or too loose, but the actual clearest, most pure wisdom way is just to be with when the mind's off. And it's actually a relief when we can do that too, because then we're not trying to manipulate it into a state that it's not right. We just bring, we bring that caring attention to the mind that's leaning in with the mind that's rejecting, or the mind that's disinterested. To do this, we have to be very, um, we have to not be so invested <coughs> in making experience behave, obviously, in the way we, we want it to behave, right? I mentioned it before, we can mention, you've been hearing it a lot, haven't you? <laughs> we'll, we'll keep mentioning it. And Because it's a really hard thing to let go, trying to impose ourselves. And in a certain way, we have to, from a wisdom place, we have to, we have to be not so personally invested in the outcome of working this way. Now, what does that mean? It means our ego <laughs> has to let go a little bit of not trying to get it so right. That ego quality, that perfectionist ego quality. And now I'm going to. I want to um, share a couple of um, attitudinal, I call them attitudinal stories that I really like, and they've helped me a lot in practice. But they kind of go against the stream of of, um, of some of the modern uh, ways that that practice is showing up in the West. And in in the Zen and Tibetan traditions, there can be a really a kind of a playful uh, playfully self-deprecating humor that people use. Okay. That monks use and nuns, which I think if done with wisdom really points it would done with wisdom actually points, um, to wisdom itself. So it goes deeper than just kind of being lighthearted. So, um, this is the first one of them. And this is from Ryokan, uh, one of my favorite, uh, Zen poets. And he was a Zen master that once he, was, once he had, had gone through the whole system and became an abbot, he left. And he just wandered and became a free spirit. Lived in little huts and stuff. He has really beautiful poetry. So he said, spring morning, and he used to love, well, you'll see. Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of, of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) So it's not a self-improvement project in the traditional way that we think it is when we come to practice. And so there's, I spoke last talk about the shift when we look at mindfulness as a, that there's a right mindfulness and then there's mindfulness, which is based on not being skillful in the world, but achieving, right? But just so I can get my goals, not about cultivating qualities of wisdom and compassion and moving with those in the world. And then there's mindfulness that really highlights skill and sensitivity and compassion. So, and that may lead, it, it, there, are, there may be one wonderful um, ripple effects, natural, like byproducts of practice that come in from that, naturally, that help us live. They may not get us a promotion because we might have to do something that we wouldn't do otherwise. Maybe we will because we live in an enlightened, no, I don't know. <laughs> But when we do this, when we, take, when we kind of take out, when we become a little bit like it's not, we're, we're not trying to improve in that way. We kind of take that out of our mind when we practice. It, it takes us out of a dualistic battlefield that we live in a lot when we practice, which is I have to get this to be better. I have to get rid of this. I have to. So like this, the, the poem, you laugh because it's, it resonates with something, doesn't it? It's like, he's like, okay, I haven't changed. I'm just a foolish monk. I'm just doing my thing. But his thing is to be vitally present, right? And that's a, it's a certain spirit. It's an idea. I'm not saying everyone go, go, hey man, let's all just hang out and give up our families and jobs. It's not that at all. But it's a spirit underneath of, I have all that. It's a spirit underneath of stepping out of that battlefield, the self-improvement battlefield. Not the working with the quality, not being really disciplined and really passionate about working with the quality of our mind and our heart and seeing how it shows up. It's a very different game. It's a very different game. So when I was um, in Japan, where I lived for a number of years, uh, I practiced Zen and I was, um, I was in a Zen monastery where I uh, I. I i wore black robes and shaved my head and i was i ended up getting pretty good at the language and so i I translated for my teacher tangian harada roshi some and um (laughs) the guy was completely spontaneous is another kind of so we're sitting up there he's next to me and there's a couple of foreigners or whatever that are coming in for an interview and they're doing the interview and all of a sudden he roshi starts like starts laughing there's something that was really funny to him okay and he, he was like 70, he had these dentures, and they go flying across the ground <laughs> to the tommy mat. And he just dove out there like a little spry little cat, grabbed it, stuffed it back in his face, back up, and just kept going. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and I'm sitting here, all, <sighs> right? <clears throat> and he was he was one of my best role models because the guy was really comfortable in his own skin. You know how some people are just doing their thing and they're really like present with him and they're just, it's, they're kind of like, okay. So he was just like, okay. It was extreme sometimes. Sometimes he'd get into eat. actually there's another story. Sometimes we get into eating and it's really kind of rigorous and like there's sto- we're all sitting around the table and all the monks are sitting at the table and he's at the head and usually you eat really fast in Zen. It said the stomach of a Zen monk is like a, is like a fire. It burns everything that comes in. And they just really they eat fast. It's very different than here. There's all different styles of practice. And so as soon as he'd do that, and then you'd ring the bell, and everyone would go running off and doing their chores and tasks and everything, uh, going to meditate, whatever. But sometimes he would just sit, he, he wouldn't ring the bell, and he'd just sit there, and he'd be like, ah. and he'd be like, look out the window. He'd be going on and on. Everyone's like, he didn't care. <laughs> he was actually sty- he was actually, he had a big Ryokan, this, the, the, this uh, poet. Ryokan lived about a hundred years before him and he had a big, there was a big uh, painting of his or a or, or brush drawing of Ryokan. He, I think he was stylized a little after Ryokan. Um, so there's a sense of being at ease, right? This sense of really uh, in embracing being at ease that, 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 that this kind of responsiveness, and he had a lot of responsibility as well he's holding a monastery but that sense of ease within it and just being natural there's a there's an epitaph um, so on the on this uh, gravestone of Sawaki Roshi it said it says wasted my whole life on the cushion <laughs> <laughs> but if i had not sat my whole life would have been a waste so what he's saying is yeah i'm just a, i just but what to me what it points to is his it would have been a waste if he hadn't sat and it's the, the metaphor isn't sitting. It's about being present. He's saying so I wasted my life being present by really radically being devoted to being present. But if I hadn't have done that, my life would have been a waste. So figure that one out. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> so the greed, hatred, and delusion, the, ma- the, the wanting, not wanting, the craving underneath, the not seeing clearly, it masks its self-importance. It turns, it's a constricted ego structure, and it's an ego, and we can see it all the time. It's shameless, because it, it just wants to be in control. So as we take up meditation, guess what? It's going to be the meditator. It wants to take over. It, it'll, it, it'll do anything. Oh, you want to be a good meditator? Okay, I'll get the best meditation clothes. I'll get the best cushion for you. If, you. if you really want me to, I'll make you sit 45 minutes a day. I'll be proud about it. But don't forget, I'm going to be in charge. It doesn't matter. It'll be anything. So it takes that mind, that mind wraps itself around any project. It's like, it says, I'll be anything you want me to be as long as I'm in charge. So f- see that mind. But the wakeful mind, and I won't even call it the wakeful person, I think it's the wakeful moments. In one way, when you look at awaken- awakening, there are beings that are more awake than others, but I think it's I mean, more consistently. But if you, th- if you look at awakening as just moments instead of beings... And it's very fresh. So when you're, so one phrase is there's no awakened beings, they're just awakened moments. So it takes that kind of out of it. It wakefulness has none of this. When you're wakeful, it has it. It won't. It doesn't have any. It, it doesn't have any business with the constricted self-importance. It's not there. So when the Buddha, when the Buddha was after he was awakened, he's walking along the road, and. Some, of his, some people came along, and actually, one man came along and saw him, and he was glowing. And the Buddha was just walking along, and he said, Buddha, what are you? Are you a man? Just like a regular man? He said, No. He said, Are you a god? He said, No. He said, What are you? He said, I am awake. I am simply awake. So, even now, as you're saying, just taste there's a freshness, just wakefulness. I am awake you ever go to ice cream shops? We won a new report from my, kind of my hometown where they have, they have like a, a few kinds of ice cream and they have a huge number of toppings or add-ins. Who gets the add-ins? It's a trick question when you go for ice cream. <laughs> so this is, when you're awake, there's no add-ins. You don't put anything on top of experience. It's just, what it, just the flavor of the experience. You're not looking, I'm gonna have it with this or that. It's fine, add-ins are good, because you'll just have those, it'll just be the ice cream and the add-ins, that's all. It won't be anything extra, (laughs) right? (laughs) So the Buddha, see this guy up here? Everyone know what his hand's doing here? All right, on the night of his enlightenment, he touched the earth as a witness to his awakening, that wakefulness, he was called into question by Mara, by that, the one he invited in for tea, like, right? In, in some versions, anyways. <laughs> so he touched the earth. So he witnessed, he, his witness to, wake, to his awakening wakefulness was touching, simply touching the present deeply. And I just love that because that's a call for us. That's a call for us to touch our own wakefulness every time we touch in, in the moment. anytime we drop in any posture, any of, the f- any of mindfulness, any of the foundations, when we drop in deeply, we're bearing witness to our wakefulness. We're stepping out in that moment from the self-importance, right? From these push-pull energies. And we know it, don't you? You've had plenty of moments today, haven't you? They just have to be impermanent like everything else. But they're here. And they bear witness and we train in being able to do that. And so Mara, Mara was the evil one. I'll finish out the story. You got, some, you got most of it. But on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he came, or it came, and it had anger. It came in the form of anger, spears and fire, and it's shown mythically different ways. Came in the form of beautiful, beautiful women that sedu- tried to seduce the Buddha and he didn't, he didn't budge. He didn't get angry, but he didn't move, right? And he was seduced by the, the, uh, the, the, the call for power. Oh, you can, you can, be, you can be powerful like, like Mara. The most powerful that controls the universe. Everyone in Mara's realm dies. Oh, you can be as powerful as me. He didn't budge. And then he doubted, the last one was he doubted, what gives you the right to be awake? And he touched the earth. So what he said to Mara is, Mara, I see you. And when our practice opens and we're standing firmly in the present, and then the forces of Mara come, they come a lot, don't they? That tempt us off of our seat. Mara, I see you. It's a good phrase to use sometimes. (laughs) When we're standing, when we're touching, we're witnessing our presence and something comes. So we see it i want to give a, a an example just a living example of um of what this means in our life and it's actually a stepbrother of mine who was who who lives in l a and he he had um um about fifteen years ago he was having he was having a really hard time he went out there to be a rock star and he he did okay but he ended up getting it's a tough culture i mean it's a there's a lot of drugs and this and that, and he ended up getting in a bad situation with substance and this and that and 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 he was in trouble. And uh, myself and his therapist and everyone said, Cliff, oh, sorry, uh, my brother, sorry. (laughs) You need to leave L.A., right? You need to get out. You can't, you can't, it's too overwhelming for you. You have to leave that situation. You can't stay there. But he did stay. And he found the support that he, it was through, through AA and through, and then he got into meditation and stuff. But he found a way to be present in the midst of his world there and be completely clean and get out of those circles, all those influences of Mara that he'd gotten really mixed up in. And so for me, it's an example. It's just a living example, a little bit of someone who's like, stays in the midst, the forces, right? The forces are there, they come, but you stay. You're not taken off your seat of awareness. So I want to give a little digression. Um, I spoke of wisdom and compassion last night, and I want to uh, uh, give an example of how this, how it kind of works in this situation. So wisdom is in our real, in our practice, moment by moment, it's the sense of being renewed by the present moment. That's wise when we get renewed by the present moment. And compassion is the skill in non-abandoning. Of whatever is making up our life. Okay, so we're abandoning our attachment to greed, hatred, and delusion interiorly. That's what we're seeing and letting go of. But we're not letting go of what's actually arising. Com- we're not letting go. We're not running from the circumstances of our life. It doesn't mean we don't change them. Over, if they're un- if we see through clarity and skillful to make a change, great. But our life in the moment, our compassion is actually being fully with it. And our wisdom is abandoning our inner reactive relation to it. So that's one way to look at wisdom and compassion in terms of just present moment awareness, okay? That they all come together. When we begin to open in practice, we can embrace uh, a slogan, which I really like, which is, this too is welcome, right? So rather than just our breath or our body or sound or whatever, our anchors being welcome, whatever arises, this too is welcome. So how's your yogi job? Do you, uh, is it okay? Everyone usually says, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. Uh See, everyone's nodding, kind of bobbing their head. Are you bored sometimes? Do you rush? Do you not give your attention because it's not the real thing? Or are you really there? Both in terms of being in the body, right? Moving, and being with whatever arises, if something arises that's resistance or pleasure, or if you're really still in it. So why do I ask this? Because it's a test. It's a test of really embracing this, this quality of practice. And I have two yogi job stories. The first is a toilet cleaning story, which is a little humbling. Uh, And it was me in Japan, when I lived in Japan, first before I went into the Zen monastery, place I lived. Um, And uh, I was doing this out of ideal, out of an ideal, or I should do this. And actually I had had like two days of fundamentalism in here, but I lived as a fundamentalist. So um, it was called Gyōgan, Oh, I don't remember how to say it anymore. Doesn't matter. That's Japanese. You're English. Okay, good. We're speaking English here? <laughs> it was called Humble, humble Cleaning of Toilet. <laughs> so we went around. I lived in this place where in th- that, uh, the woman that I, that I knew very closely there introduced me to Zen, and then I moved on from there and went into monasteries and stuff. Um, and she practiced Zen and introduced it to me while I lived there. And, but I lived there for about a year, this place called Itoen near Kyoto. And the the spiritual practice was that you went out and you cleaned toilets, which is really humbling, especially in old Japan, when they were like dirt toilets. I don't, okay. Anyways, so you had this little, you put this little bucket over your arm and you went around the houses and you knocked on the door and said, I'd like to clean your toilet for world peace and my own inner purification. (laughs) (laughs) So we did, it was kind of ceremonious because the main guru had died and so, you know, it was like the next generation and... People had a kind of nice communal life. But I was like, I'm really going to do this. So I came back to America. My little, and, I had my, and I put on my little black robe, my samuji, my little work outfit. And I went to the next town, next to Hanover, New Hampshire, Lebanon, New Hampshire, and I went to a neighborhood. I got my little bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and I went and I knocked on the door. Hello. Oh, hello, must. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> may I please clean your toilet for, wor- for world peace and self-purification bam, slam <laughs> okay, didn't go so well let's try again <laughs> next house hi <laughs> I'm a bald-headed guy <laughs> may I please clean your toilet for self-purification world peace, slam that was it I was done. So um, maybe that's the wrong kind of foolish. Yeah? Think that was the wrong kind of foolish? I learned pretty darn quickly to like that I was was really not looking in the right place. (laughs) But in a way, um, the the way-seeking mind, when we have the way-seeking mind, we'll do things that are sometimes, when we're impulsive, that are a little bit a little crazy because we just really, we really see that we need to, we need to shake it up. We need to do something different. And so the Zen master I spoke of earlier, when he was, um, uh, he was a kamikaze pilot in World War II. Where he was supposed to be one. And he was really devoted to, to, this was another way of getting himself into something bigger. So he really wanted to give himself for, the, for Japan. And it said that the war ended, the story I heard was that the war ended a few days before he was supposed to go out. And he actually tried to get on a plane and fly because he wouldn't do it. And they had to lock him up because he just, he wanted to, he so badly wanted to do it. So later on, everyone else was going back, all his friends from the military were going back to the normal lives. And he said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to live by those principles, Like he really had, he wanted to, to, to break through and give himself to something bigger, which was probably misinformed in being a kamikaze pilot. And so he went to the Zen monastery and it said that he used to practice. He had such zealousness that he would like tie himself around a tree in full lotus and practice all night long. And they had to back him off his practice. Um, but he became a great Zen master. And for us, the kind of, I think the, the lesson sort of in terms of effort is that extraordinary effort can, you know, can show great resolve. But often when we do it, and for our, like on retreat and stuff, uh, we're not going to, please don't tie your legs into a full lotus and practice all night long. Um, but it can lead to burnout when it's not balanced. Okay, but that's another example of someone with really zealous, like that zealousness. And some of that energy, if you turn it, it can be okay. But I practice the wrong kind of foolishness. So the second story, which is from here, of a a yogi job, was someone who, another person who was uh, given a job of cleaning toilets when they came on here. And so everyone who came in, they just got signed up a job. You didn't didn't have any choice unless medical, unless you had a medical excuse. So um, she was a big executive, very high executive, actually, in a big company, and she was given toilet cleaning, and she didn't clean toilets. That's not something she did. But she had a really good spirit. And so she said, okay, that's my yogi job. I'm going to do it. But she had incredible reactivity to it. She did. She just, she tried to do it and she had incredible, just, it brought up so many things in her. And so she'd come in for interviews uh, with Larry Rosenberg, who was uh, teaching that course, of, you know, for many, many years. And then myself. So we both worked with her. And she took it on. She really took it on. She took it on for that course. She came back for many years and she'd do it at home. And she saw through, it brought up so much. And she just through going into that place and being with that resistance and just being fully in her body and practicing the four foundations, she worked through it and something, and she had openings. She had breakthroughs, she had releases through taking it on. There's a, um, an image of a, a, a cool pool and a fire, and there's two people and they have a chance. You can either dive in the cool pool or you can dive in the fire. So there's an image of one person diving in the cool pool and immediately they're reborn in a fire. And there's an image of someone diving into a fire and immediately being reborn in a cool pool. Get it? So what it means is that sometimes when we avoid, when we avoid what's coming up, if we have the strength, and this is what we'll talk about next, if we have it, if we go into those tough places, when we go through them, we open. And sometimes when we just go into what's pleasant and we keep doing that, it leads to something else. Okay. So I really like the story that she brought because it was this kind of uh, bring it on, you know, like a real bring it on courage, right? But that attitude, I think it's very important to be balanced with this next attitude that I want to talk about. Which is that we let life decide what we attend to. And again, this is stepping out of our self-importance <laughs> to do this. So she did her yogi job because that's what she was given, right? This is what life presented, and so she worked with it. And we have to um, we have to learn to trust in the process. So one thing I've noticed that happens sometimes is that in in our practice in the West is that we start to We often mix mindfulness with a kind of uh, psychological agenda, and it's tricky when we're using questions and we're questioning because that can be very powerful, like where is this coming from and what's in the body, etc. But sometimes we're looking for the answer in a way that is very much um, leading our practice and informing our practice, and we really want to think it through. We want to get the answer in words. We don't have, we don't want to, or we don't we'll, we'll take the teaching and we'll twist them a little bit. <laughs> okay. Cause that's, cause it's in the image of what we, we want. We have an agenda. And so I got it. I'm going to share this. I just got this. Um, I had a, 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 a very good exchange recently with, a, with a, a, a yogi about this, about being in the mind of wanting to understand psychologically what was going on. And I was trying to be a little bit, I was being kind, but I was, also being direct and saying it's a little different than than it's just a little different. I think you can. And so I got this note and it said, hi, you were right. My practice gets better even if I don't understand everything. My retreat goes well. Thank you. My retreats get, gets better even if I don't understand everything. So isn't that interesting? So it's saying, oh, if I drop that extra, it's an extra, right? It's an add-in. <laughs> so I drop that and surrender. Maybe. Hmm. Now it doesn't mean that emotional rich. It doesn't mean that emotional richness is not part of the path. Some people think that we're supposed to be like these equanimous, mindfulness automatons. Uh, that's not my experience <laughs> at all. It's really not. And I'll just tell you a couple of stories. Once, when I was in uh, Burma, I was just minding my business. I was doing a five-week retreat, Shamatha Vipassana, just minding my business. And one day, all of this, all these uh, images and strong emotions from my grandfather came up, who I had had a little falling out with because I just had I kind of left and I didn't fall in the fold. I didn't I didn't fall expectations, and I hadn't seen him. and, and then I saw him some, and we had patched it together a little bit, but I hadn't grieved and I wasn't there at his funeral and stuff. And just for a couple, just for a while, it just, I just had tears and everything just was just streaming through. I had no, I had no idea. I just hadn't grieved and I didn't, you know, I'm a guy, whatever. And so after it was over, I just, I felt refreshed. I was tired, but I felt absolutely refreshed. It went on for a couple days on and off. And then I never came back. Even though, I mean, it's, but now it's there. I can feel that love now much more easily. Um, but it washed through and I felt an aliveness. And another story in the one Zen monastery I was the same teacher. There was a, we're sitting in the Zendo and everyone's in half Lotus or full Lotus and really practicing hard and not moving. And, uh, and then this German monk just starts bawling, just started crying. And it was pure. You could tell it was spontaneous. He just started crying. And uh, the Roshi just yelled out, good, his Zen practice now begin. So it was that full dedication to being really with what is present and then allowing from that place, whatever washes through, to be fully met and fully moved. But it's not in our control. So we let life decide. And this is akin to another attitude that's very important, which is humility. It takes humility to do this, doesn't it, to get out of our own way. Now, the word humility uh, is linked to human and linked to humus, which is the stuff under the earth out of which things grow. So it's human. To be humble is to be human in this sense. And then it's of the stuff that's, that's breaking down, right? It's the stuff underneath that actually brings the, the place of life and growth. It's like the fodder. In more classic Buddhist language, this is the lotus that grows out of the mud. Mm. And my main—I've uh, mentioned him a number of times—Larry Rosenberg. He has a poem, which is very short. I like it. He says, "Where is peace to be found? In the same place as suffering. How convenient." <laughs> huh. <laughs> huh. <laughs> So the next question is, it may be convenient, but is it wise? When we practice, we can practice with this too is welcome. But what about the story, remember the story of Mara? when the, uh, uh, Pat told when he invited Mara, that Buddha invited Mara in for tea. Well, what ha- And then really gave him sweets and tea and it just gave him love. What happens when we invite Mara in? And Mara decides to to, uh, put his feet up on the table and be a little bit rambunctious and then keeps the door open, invites all his friends in. And then they take all the tea and then they go in the back and they ransack. You get it? And they take over and they don't want to leave. Okay? (laughs) So that didn't happen because that that was the Buddha. But if we're in the place of the Buddha, fine. (laughs) But if we're not, then often, sometimes it can be very important to to work with this question, which is, um, can this too be welcome? And if the answer is no, if we're not ready, if something's coming and we feel intuitively, or we're just getting overwhelmed and we're just trying to be with it, but it's just not working, then it's much more wise often to go back and to spend much more time just grounding and steadying our attention, right? And then if we settle, and that can be done both grounding in, or it can be opening. It's not, there's not a set way. We've been working with different strategies. It can be doing metta, it can be just, you know, opening to sound, or it can be very much working in a more disciplined way with the breath and the body. Okay. So I want to, the last part, I want to give a few examples of how, and then we can work back and forth um, with shamatha, grounding and steadying, and then opening, right? Welcoming, renewing, in a more limited field, opening. So um, one way that we, and I'll give examples from daily life and retreat. So one way to practice simple shamatha or, or, or taking mindfulness pauses and getting a little bit renewed, which is what a lot of modern mindfulness meditation movement is. It's just, it's calming. It's just a little bit of calming, right? And it's very helpful. So we can take, that's not all it has to be, but a lot of it is. Um, we can take mindfulness pauses throughout. We can breathe, we can feel a breath, we can take those pauses in the midst of, of, of life. We can take ourselves out of, and we can do that in retreat, right? We can take ourselves out of a situation and get renewed. So I've had periods on retreats sometimes where, like I did long retreats here, where I just, it was really hard to be in the hall. So I'd check in with the teacher and for like a week or so, I'd spend a lot more time in nature. And then when the system had settled, then I came back into the form, right? So sometimes you actually have to just, it's wise, skillful means to remove yourself and then come back in. One thing I love is uh, this quote from Thich Nhat Hanh about when we we can use the breath as an anchor, and I'll I'll work with this a little bit more in the instructions tomorrow. It's one possibility where we stay in touch with our anchor, but we open at the same time. And some, a number of people have reported that in the groups too, being in touch with the breath and mind states or feelings. And he says this in terms of anger. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with mindfulness. If you keep breathing, the mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. Hmm. So there's that sense that our anchor can be there with us. And usually we're working back and forth, right? In the instructions. But if it's natural for you and it opens for you naturally and you're in touch with your anchor and an object, use that strength so you can. So you can be with it, but you're not alone with it. You can go back and forth. So I had an experience with my mother once where I was coming back from Asia and. She had left when I was a kid, and we were trying to work things out, right? Going through a mother-child. We loved each other, and we were trying to work things out. And it, the conversations got heated sometimes. Not heated, but just they were hard sometimes. And, um, and so I'd, sometimes I'd remove myself and do a little breathing. Walking and breathing, and I'd come back. And so one time we were talking, and she just looked at me and she said, Matthew, will you please go do that breathing thing? <laughs> and, and, no. and she said, it always works better when you come back. So that was the wisdom of going out, getting renewed, and then entering back in. It was another expression, right, of moving back and forth. And then a, a last example is working uh, directly. When we don't go anywhere, we don't, you know, we don't even go to an object. And this often, this can happen in a relationship. We're just interested in our own minds, right, and what's arising how we're meeting it in the midst of something. And we actually just watched that. So at a time with my wife a a while ago, we're sitting around the kitchen, standing actually around the kitchen island, and we had some, you know, couples have repetitive, kind of like you do, you know, kind of get each other sometimes in little ways, that little repetitive patterns that nobody has that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So we were in one of those uh, patterns and I knew what she would say and then I knew what would come next from me. She's not sitting here. That's good. And, <laughs> I, and I just, oh, she's back there. And I just, and I, and it happened. And number t- And I knew where it was going. It's just, it's, it's just, we're like an old couple. You know, even though we, you know, whatever. We've been together plenty of years. Uh, and then just, and I usually do that. But one time we're just there. And then I felt, I just was there, standing there. And I felt it come up. I felt that, I felt the next move. And I felt the reactivity before it. And I just stood there. And I watched it and she was talking and then it was my turn and nothing happened. Nothing came out, (laughs) but I wasn't repressing it either. It actually came and it, it left. And then something else happened. I said, something happened. It just shifted. It just shifted and it didn't, it didn't escalate and it just kind of petered out. And so that's one way that's like on the spot. It's like right in the midst of, we can bring that. We can do it here too. All these are, can fit on retreat life as well. Um, and in that, and this is the, the last point with this, in that we have to learn to appreciate when there's not drama. When we see something and, or we create the conditions where it doesn't arise. It's called appreciating the non toothache. And it, it moves into appreciating silence. And there's a steadiness in that. And there's a continuity in that, but it's not of the normal order. <laughs> So it's a very important part of practice to actually learn to recognize for all us intensity junkies and drama, kings and queens in the room, right? Okay, good. Okay. So Ajahn Chah, last few reflections on wisdom said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. So this is when there's enough concentration and then we can see into experience. What happens? How does wisdom ripen? given some examples. Here's just a couple more. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there's complete peace. Ah. Now, often when we let go, we're trying to let go. There's A little push, a little agenda. So it's not that. All we can do, I'll give, actually, I'll give you one, when I was walking the loop before I did, came for the talk, I, I I wanted to be in the sitting, but my timing wasn't quite right. So I went for a walk and, and, um, and my mind, I was trying to get the t- talk a little tighter. I guess I didn't succeed. I got to do, I'll finish in two minutes. Uh, and, <laughs> and, um, and, my, I th- and I, it was in my mind that like, I, I just, I was trying to hone it and, cl- and like get it to a smaller form. And my mind was clinging and I just, these words came in my mind, I just can't cling to this. And then there was a cluster of tension in my mind and it just, phew, I could actually feel it like drift out of the right side of my brain. And then I was just really open and clear for a while. It's just like, I just opened and I enjoyed m- the walk much more. And so for me, and it was actually, it was an insight. It's like, you know, I can't, this is, I can't control how my brain works that well. We have to, like, when he said to me, we were talking about different things. He's like, everyone's got a different brain. It's true. Our brains work differently. And I was like, I can't, I can't fit my brain into this box. And it was, but when I saw it, I wasn't looking. I wasn't invested. I wasn't thinking about it. There was just the energy. It came, it arose, and it disappeared, and there was space and openness. And I was like, oh, okay. And we have these little insights, don't we, Sometimes. And so we actually can't make them happen. But we, through our practice, we create the causes and conditions. That's all we do. Our effort, our trying to work skillfully with the forms we have, that's our, that's our job. It's an expression that uh, enlightenment is an accident from Trungpa Rinpoche, but uh, <coughs> practice makes us accident-prone. <laughs> good kind of accident-prone. Okay, Good. So we let the last f- form of wisdom is letting go into, which is kind of like my favorite because <laughs> then we let go of, right? That which is blocking us, these energies, and then we can let go into our life. Dogen, a great Zen master just said that intimacy is, uh, awakening is real deep intimacy or John Muir, the great naturalist said that every seeming fragment, so any part of any of the foundations of mindfulness from the technical language or just anything that arises that's a part of experience, it's a fragment, right? It's a piece of experience, is a complete whole unto itself. So that means anything that we see perfectly, clearly, it's whole. And for us, that means there's a wholeness in in our awareness when the conditions are right and we break, we see into and through. And then what's left? The Bahia Sutta from the Buddha said, in the scene, there's just the seen. In the heard, there's just the herd. In the cognized, even the cognized, the, all my fields of mindfulness, just, that's just what it is. In the felt, just the felt. The sense, just the sense, okay? Everything, just. And when there is just what there is, then there's no you in the object, right? There's no leaning into, there's no you in you (laughs) because your awareness is fully opened. Just this, he said, is the end of suffering, right? There's no full of self-importance. There's none of that. There's, There's not even that knowing on top of experience. There's just experience. Okay, so one last thing. This is from Song Sunim, who had the famous don't know mind teaching. you know about that? He always said, don't know mind. Don't know mind. Just, just practice don't know mind. Right? The wisdom don't know mind, right? They're like, just don't know mind. And so he's having this uh, interview with a, uh, a radio host or something, and they get to the end of the interview, and the radio host says, oh, that was great, Song Sanim. That was just great. Wow. Just one thing I don't understand. Could you please explain uh, don't not mind? And he said, oh, wonderful, empty inside. Thank you for your attention, let's please do some walking.